0: And learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for Session 153 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Last week, through the generous sponsorship and support of MedIQ, I was able to have a conversation with Dr. Oni Blackstock, who is the Assistant Commissioner for the Bureau of HIV-AIDS Prevention and Control for the New York City Health Department. Dr. Blackstock has spent much of her career advocating for justice in medicine and is always so amazing at translating medical information so that it's digestible for everyone. She shared all the facts you need to know about what we currently know about COVID-19, tips on how to keep you and your loved ones safe, and what vaccine development looks like for the virus, and how it would work once we have one. This conversation originally took place on our Facebook page, and it was so good that I wanted to make sure as many of you heard it as possible. Once you've listened, please be sure to share with your circles as well. Here's our conversation. I'm very happy that you all were able to join us this Thursday afternoon. Um, so, those of you who have been following for some time, you know that this is typically our three for Thursday time. We have a very special guest with us—a returning special guest, um, Dr. Oni Blackstock. So, I am Dr. Joy Harden Bradford. I am the li- I'm a licensed psychologist and the founder of Therapy for Black Girls. And Dr. Oni Blackstock is the Assistant Commissioner for the Bureau of HIV. Prevention and Control for the New York City Health Department. So welcome back, Dr. Blackstock.
1: Thanks for having me, Dr. Bradford. Good to see you again.
0: Perfect, perfect. I'm very happy to have you back. Janae is in the comments saying that she follows you on Twitter and loves you. (laughs) (laughs) So today, Dr. Blackstock, the last time she joined us, we talked all about PrEP, um, the medication that is used related to HIV AIDS. Um, And today she is joining us to talk about all of the facts that we need to know about COVID-19. So we know um, how this is disproportionately, unfortunately, impacting our community. So we really wanted to make sure that we had a conversation with a physician who is doing the work on the front lines um, to kind of give us the factual information and to kind of get rid of any misconceptions that people are having. So I'm really thankful to the MedIQ team for partnering with us again to sponsor this conversation with Dr. Blackstock. So Dr. Blackstock, and make sure you drop your questions in the comments, so Dr. Blackstock will be answering as many questions as she can, um, so make sure you're dropping those in the comments. So Dr. Blackstock, I wanna first begin by hearing, um, why is this virus so different than any other virus that we've experienced? So Dr. Bradford
1: said so this is um, a novel virus, so a new virus, brand new. Um, identified in late December in Wuhan, China, and since then has um, traveled across the globe. Um, This virus in particular seems more contagious than some of its predecessors, um, such as um, SARS and MERS, which people may have heard of in the past. Um, And then also something that um, seems um, somewhat unique about it is that people can have uh, infection with um, the coronavirus and novel coronavirus and not have any symptoms or have very mild symptoms. And so because of that, people may be spreading it to others without knowing. the SARS virus, um, the first one from back, I think, in 2003, I believe, or 13, that virus um, typically caused like very significant respiratory symptoms. So if someone was sick, um, they knew it. Um, but with the novel coronavirus, there um, are people who may have no symptoms or very mild symptoms with it and then can spread to others.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And something else that we are kind of learning is how it impacts people differently. And so, you know, I think a lot of people have been shocked. um, And of course, it is on a case by case basis but that children are not seemingly as impacted, um, at least by the symptoms of the coronavirus. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, so we
1: are seeing um, much, you know, worse outcomes um, as age increases. So particularly in older people in the population, we're seeing them being disproportionately impacted, hospitalized, and dying from this new coronavirus um, infection. And um, the thought is that some of this has to do with sort of differences in the body's response to this new virus. So older people have a more um, vigorous response in terms of mounting um, an immune response. Um, so May have like a lot. For instance, um, the lung involvement that we see when people have really um, much trouble breathing and the lungs fill up with inflammatory cells, um, that is more likely to happen in someone who is older um, than someone who is younger. So these differences in how people are responding by age seem to be um, one of the reasons why we see it affecting older people more and um, younger people less.
0: Got it, got it. So what are some of the main things that we can do down to the Black side to make sure that we are keeping ourselves safe and our loved ones? Right, so
1: if people have the um, ability to, to definitely shelter in place. I know that not everyone has access to safe um, and warm shelter, Um, but if you do, to definitely stay inside unless you need to go outside for essential items like food or there's like urgent medical care you need otherwise um please stay inside people should probably only be going out every one to two weeks if they're able to um we understand some people don't have that choice and are still having to work to support themselves and support their families um for for those individuals who must leave um the house frequently and are in like high contact uh professions a recommendation is to um you know, when they are coming back home, really to ch- if they can change their clothes before entering their homes um, and then to immediately shower if possible um, because that can reduce the risk if there's anything like on their clothes or on their bodies that could be like the, vi- the virus and then they could touch a contact surface and then someone in their home could touch it, that could cause spread. So definitely changing one's clothes when one goes home or just having a different set of clothes for work um, than for home. Um, obviously, hand hygiene for everyone, so washing your hands for 20 seconds with soap and water or using alcohol-based um, sanitizer. Um, if you need to reach out to a, a, a physician or um, healthcare provider, seeing whether they have a telehealth option, um, if, you're, if you're able to, those are all um, really important as well. When you cough or you sneeze, make sure you're sneezing into a tissue or into the crook of your, um, your arm like this and not using your hands. Avoid shaking hands with people. You can do the Wakanda salute, elbows, whatever it is, but avoid um, touching other people. Making sure you're disinfecting your home. Making sure also that you're taking care of yourself, that you're like eating well, that you're getting the sleep that you need. I know this, this is a very stressful time, so people may not be able to get the sleep that they need, but trying to really prioritize sleep. And then also part of health is really the social support that we have from our family and friends. So really trying to maintain maintaining those connections, um, but doing so virtually.
0: And a part of the reason it sounds like that the recommendation so quickly was for people to shelter at home if they could was because of how easy it seems for the virus to spread. Correct. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Right. So. Right. And so that was another thing. Right. To add to add to the, um, the issue around physical distancing or social distancing. And the whole idea is that so this virus is spread when someone coughs, sneezes um, or um, talks. It can be spread in terms of respiratory droplets, these little sort of droplets that include that have the virus in them, but they don't go further than than six feet. And Mm -hmm. so that is the reason why we want people to to. have a distance of at least six feet from other people because that way they won't be infected through droplets. Um, it's also um, spread by if someone you know coughs or sneezes, touches their nose, their face whatever, and then touches a surface, or touches someone else and then that person touches it and then touches them their face. So definitely um, avoid, so physical distancing, which obviously is an extension of the sheltering in place. But when you do go outside maintaining at least six feet if you can, um, and avoiding touching your face. Also I should add, depending on what jurisdiction you live in, I'm in New York city. And so the recommendation is for everyone, if they are in places where they cannot maintain a six feet distance to wear a face covering, Mm -hmm. the face covering does not necessarily prevent someone from acquiring the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. It prevents them from Passing it to someone else. Because we said a lot of people may not have any symptoms and may be unknowingly transmitting it. So the face covering can help if you have coronavirus infection, may not know it, helps you to prevent, prevent you from passing it to others.
0: Got it. So we have a question um, from Cynthia who says, what about Black folks who are not exercising caution because they consider the virus a hoax? Um, So I'm not sure how much you've heard about some of the misinformation around um, the coronavirus being related to 5G, um, to the telephone, you know, systems and those kinds of things. Like, what kinds of things would you say about that?
1: Yeah, I definitely want to make space for, you know, concerns around this virus being a hoax, because I think that um, as Black people in this country, um, we have obviously been been treated in a way that would make us sort of question what we're hearing from sort of larger um, authorities. And so one to say like hold space for that and the fact that this is not a hoax, this is like a very real virus that is really causing um, much um, illness and death around the globe, Um, we, no, initially I think there were also some suggestions that black people don't get coronavirus infections mm-hmm. initially. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with like, we just didn't have access to testing for it. Mm-hmm. So that was why, and then people were saying it wasn't happening happening in Africa. I think also again, now we're seeing Africa being impacted. And a lot of it is really about, are, we, are do people have access to testing? And initially um, the criteria to be tested very early on in this were very restrictive. Mm-hmm. So people had to have like in, um, travel to um, Wuhan, China, and or Italy, and some other places that were um, being heavily impacted. And you know, we um, you know, many of us some do travel, but many of us don't travel, and so we would we would be limited um, by those um, really strict criteria in terms of being able to get tested. Um, now, test testing has opened up more, but we still have to, we still deal with some of the same same barriers, and obviously, you know, provider bias, concerns that maybe our symptoms aren't being treated, um, aren't being. Um, sort of considered serious when they are. We do know there are beliefs that medical providers have, um, particularly white medical providers that, you know, black people may have a different threshold for pain. Um, and we know that these um, biases really impact the care that people receive. So mm-hmm. I wanna acknowledge counter narratives and beliefs around this potentially being a hoax um, and those beliefs with the fact that this, this is something that's very real and we wanna make sure that um, that black communities know this are, and are doing what they can to stay safe, recognizing there are lots of structural factors um, that make us very vulnerable to this.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. I appreciate you being able to hold space for both of those mm-hmm. things, right Because that is a very real part of our history in this country, for sure. So you mentioned testing a little bit, and so I want to dive into that a little bit more um, because you said that, like, testing has opened up, um, but we are also kind of seeing accounts on social media, and even I've heard from, like, friends and colleagues um, that they may have some symptoms, but they try to call around to try to find a test, and they're still kind of saying, you know, like, oh, there are not enough tests or you don't actually meet the threshold. So what kind of information would you share with us about testing?
1: Right. So I would say um, just first, because I know everyone is um, listening or watching from different places throughout the country. So making sure you check with your local and state health department web like web pages to see sort of what um, testing is available and what are sort of the thresholds for testing where you live. Um, just saying that I think also private providers may be also doing something, you know, different in terms of like, who they're testing and whatever. So just putting that out there. Um, but because testing has been limited, it has been reserved, um, at least where I am in New York City, for people who were present, who were sicker, who had more, more chronic medical conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure, um, people with very severe presentations, you know, very short of breath. And so the priority um, has been to test those individuals. Um, because we want folks who have a milder illness, um, if they're doing okay and they don't need medical help, we want them to stay home um, to isolate themselves um, um, for a certain period of time after which they won't be um, able to pass it on to others um, and to do that. And that's sort of the way that we had been addressing this issue around the shortage of tests. Um, Now we're seeing increases in um, resources putting, putting, um, for testing. And so hopefully we'll see some of those barriers lessen. Um, And I'm happy also to talk about like, there are different types of testing. Um, There are two main types of testing. Okay, can you share that? people may have heard about. Sure, so um, there's like, there's like molecular or or PCR testing and that testing is usually involving like a swab in up the nose um, and um, also in the nostrils, sometime now in the saliva and sort of back in the throat. Um, that testing is for if someone has an infection at that moment. So it's like, do I have coronavirus, um, you know, COVID-19 right now? Um, and so that's what that test helps to identify. We call it like acute infection. Um, the reality is that none of these tests are 100% accurate. Um, so mm-hmm. it is possible, depending on how the specimen was, was taken or whatever, that someone who does have symptoms that are very consistent with COVID-19 could test negative. Um, and then it's, also possible that you could have a false positive. So just to say that, like, they're not 100% accurate, um, but typically if someone tests positive and they have symptoms consistent, we say that that is coronavirus, um, COVID-19. There's also testing, um, antibody testing or serologic testing, Um, and that, um, you may people may hear more and more about that, and that type of testing can help us determine if someone has been infected in the past uh, with, um, with, with the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, our body, when we're exposed to um, a virus or bacteria um, can often mount um, an antibody response. And, but sometimes it doesn't do that necessarily immediately. So that's why this test is not used for um, testing like a current infection, it can t- but it takes time to develop the antibody response. So that's why it can detect whether someone has had a previous infection. All that being said is there are many tests that are flooding the market now, um, and many of them have very questionable accuracy. And so we just want to make sure that people understand that many of these tests um, haven't necessarily been validated. Um, And so it's possible that someone can get um, a false positive. So saying that a test result that says they've been exposed to coronavirus and they had it, and then people will think, Oh, well, now I have protection against Mm -hmm. it, and they'll go out and do whatever they want to do. And then there are people who could potentially have um, false negative tests as well. Um, So just to say that um, there are more and more tests that are coming on the market and hopefully we will be able to, um, you know, have more widespread availability of these tests and have them be really accurate.
0: Got it, got it. Thank you for that, Dr. Blacksock. And don't forget to be dropping your questions in the um, comments section. And for those of you joining us, please make sure that you're sharing this on your Facebook pages as well so that we can get as many people getting this information as possible. So we saw another question. um, Why are we having just as many cases in the warmer climates if heat kills the virus? Okay. So it's, it's actually not clear.
1: Um, this is a new virus. Like we don't know whether he kills it or not. I think this is, we're going to see um, what happens. Um, we know and people in Florida, I think are, you know, in warm climates um, throughout the world are being impacted. So it's not completely clear whether this is going to have like a um, significant seasonal variation. Um, there is a thought that it is possible that by the summertime things might improve based on all the social distancing and physical um, and mitigation measures that are being taken, Um, but it's possible that it may come back again in the fall for a second wave along with the flu. Mm. So I suspect that, um, I don't know if we'll be going back to normal anytime soon, um, and that as we see declines in the number of cases and lower transmission of this virus, um, we may see like a relaxing of the physical distancing. So maybe people may return to work, but not everyone all at one time, maybe it'll be staggered. People might have alternating schedules. We might see maybe more businesses opening up, but only allowing a a smaller number of people inside. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that might end up being our new
0: normal. Got it. So let's, talk a little bit about this new normal and like what kinds of things would need to be in place for us to be able to even gather again. And I am I know that one part of that is yes. a vaccine, right? Um, tell yes. us like where things stand with the vaccine and what would the vaccine even do?
1: Right. Okay. So um, there are, I think like dozens of vaccine candidates that are in very early stages of development and investigation. I believe there are five vaccine candidates that are in clinical trials, two of which I believe are here in the United States. So a vaccine basically prevents or reduces the risk of infection by a virus or bacteria. And it does so by sort of replicating the the body's immune response to that virus or bacteria so that when the body actually does see it, it is ready to protect itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to say that there are lots of stages to vaccine development and that typical vaccines take um, usually, and probably there's no typical, but about 10 to 15 years for development. Obviously, things are gonna be much more accelerated with um, a vaccine against COVID-19. And the timeline that um, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the NIH has put forward is about 12 to 15 months. I have heard him say on the news that um, They think it's possible that there'll be a vaccine available in the fall, probably for frontline workers, first responders, healthcare workers, sort of more like piloting, testing that. And then for the more general population, if all things go as planned um, by next spring. But this is like that would be like if everything went as planned, there were no issues,
0: <laughs> but mm. um,
1: people should know, you know, initially they test vaccines and, you know, in animal models, they have to see if they're safe and they have to test them and, and people who have, you know, healthy people, like they're just lots of different steps. And the same thing for treatment as well. Um, you know, there are lots of different, there are preclinical stages. Um, there are phase one, two and three stages of clinical trials. Um, the thought is that there will probably be a treatment uh, treatment um, that's approved before we have a vaccine, yeah. um, and there are a number of a number of dozens of treatments also that are being investigated. Um, the NIH uh, on Tuesday came out with their um, treatment guidelines for COVID-19, and as of now, it is supplemental really supplemental oxygen and mechanical ventilatory support. So really helping people to breathe as their body fights off this um, infection. Um, There are no FDA approved treatments for Mm -hmm. COVID-19. There are, um, people may have heard of like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine um, and the panel at, at the National Institute of Health recommended that if these are used, that they should be used within the context of a clinical trial because there was not enough evidence to use them sort of outside of of a research um, setting. Um, So yeah, so a number of, of, uh, oh, and then also the NIH trial also said they actually uh, recommended against using hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. This is what um, the president had actually recommended um, as potential treatment. They're saying the data that they have suggests that it's actually more, does more harm than good. And then also, Calitro or Lipinavir Ritonavir, which is an HIV medication, which has had um, activity against other coronaviruses. They're also saying that that also the, the risks appear to outweigh the benefits. So those were two medications that they were saying, definitely don't use hydroxychloroquine alone and chloroquine could be used as well as Remdesivir, another medication, um, but within the setting of, of clinical clinical trials.
0: So can you explain to us how that window is going to be shortened? So if something typically takes 10 to 15 years before, like how how is it going to be possible for it to get to us so much quicker?
1: Yeah, I, I think, I, I suspect, um, it's a really good question. I don't know if like maybe the numbers of people that will be enrolled will be much larger. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not sure how they're able to um, accelerate this. I do know that there are many people who are collaborating from all over the globe, and I'm sure sort of sharing um, best practices and what they're learning, I'm sure sort of like putting everyone's brains together will help. Mm-hmm. And there may be differences in how recruitment is happening, how um, the, tri- the trials are being designed that would allow for them to be to be expedited so for instance like if you're able to like enroll a larger number of people you have like more power to see whether there's a difference mm-hmm. between different treatments so that may be one way that they're they're doing this
0: and can you explain a little bit about a clinical trial because there may be people who say like yes, yeah, yeah. sign me up like I want to help um you know so what does it look like to participate in a clinical trial and is it safe
1: Yeah, yeah. So there are are different stages of clinical trials. Um, So phase one are the clinical trials. Those are the first clinical trials that happen in human beings. And those are really testing for safety and they enroll like a very small number of people. Um, And then that goes all the way up to phase three trials, which are really the trials around enrolling a large number of people, and those are looking at um, sort of how efficacious, how well does this treatment work, and also like how, also looking more again at the t- at safety and different like side effects that people are having. And phase three is what's needed usually to get um, FDA approval or a, a license to be able to um, market the medication. Um, so I think I suspect like I'm online and I maybe I can like look for resources afterwards. But there are probably opportunities to be to take part in, in treatment trials. Treatment trials are likely gonna be happening happening in hospital settings already. So if someone is, hosp- is hospitalized, treatment will probably be for those folks who have very severe disease um, right now. And then for vaccine trials, um, I can look and see if the NIH or any other entities have, uh, I'm sure there's stuff online so people can volunteer to um, be part mm-hmm. of these trials. Um, and then there are also um, a number of studies that are going on where and these are also related to um, to treatment, people who have had COVID-19 like, and can give um, their serum, so and have the antibodies from that taken so that they can be also used as part of clinical trials for, for, for treatment to see if they, um, they can um, treat or protect people from, from COVID-19.
0: Got you, okay. Okay, so Jessica, has for families that have had a family member in their household test positive for COVID-19 and have recovered and returned to work, should extra precautions still be taken by the family members who have not contracted the virus in that time? Would it be advised for the family member who has to return to work to continue working?
1: Okay, so with the family member who has to return to work, is that person um, had COVID or did not have COVID-19?
0: Right, the person tested positive, has recovered, and has okay. returned to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the there is um, data to suggest that most people who have um, COVID-19 um, probably stop shedding virus, meaning they don't, they can't pass it to other people probably after eight days after symptom onset, after they start having symptoms. Um, and we ha- we use this like seven plus three type thing um, for most healthy people. Like if it's been seven days since the person started having symptoms, um, it's been three days since they um, have not had a fever and they haven't been taking any Tylenol or, or other uh, fever reducing medication. And they're overall improving. Then they can probably like they're not infectious and can probably conduct their business as usual. Um, I would still say for the people in the house who have not had COVID-19, like obviously they're potentially at risk, but not of getting COVID-19 from their the people who are in the house with them, if, that, if they have lab, if they have lab confirmed um, COVID, if it's been confirmed by a test, mm-hmm. um, and so they should take all, all the precautions. I think everyone should just, you know, take all the precautions in terms of hand hygiene, the social dist- physical distancing. When you sneeze, use your elbow, like all of that. Everyone should just continue doing that because. We we don't know because it's possible that the people in that house, because they were living with someone who had COVID-19, they actually may have had it already. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Right. So it's just safe to act like we all could potentially have it and just to protect ourselves and other people.
0: Got it. Another question. Can we realistically expect to travel out of the U.S. this year?
1: Oh, it's a good good question. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone can predict the future. I think everyone should. Try to if they can hunker down, stay put because we are literally hiding from this virus, right? We're like in our homes if we if ha- we're fortunate to have a home that's safe and warm. Um, and I think that the, to the extent that we can to continue um, physical distancing, um, and this will also give us time in many jurisdictions to like ramp up other other initiatives. So like there's going to be in New York City, um, a lot of resources put behind um, contact case investigation and contact tracing. So once we have many um, fewer cases, we can have disease detectives go out and if they and if someone is test positive they can go and talk with their contacts. Um, the people who've been, who've been in contact with them they can put them potentially or make sure that they isolate themselves. So then'll be a much more manageable number of people that we can directly um, work with to ensure that they also are not passing the virus on um, to other people Um, we'll also hopefully there'll be a time to like develop a treatment, develop a vaccine. So I think we need to use these like non-pharmaceutical interventions like the physical distancing Mm -hmm. um, until which time we we have like robust treatment and um, vaccine available. So I think it will probably be like a tightening and a, loose, a loosening and a tightening of um, these social, of physical distancing. So I think it'll loosen. We might then see a recrudescence or like an increase in cases, and then we'll have to tighten up again. And so it may be like that for a while until we have um, vaccine and treatment.
0: Dr. Blacksock, I had also seen something, I'm not sure um, where, about, you know, if you've contracted COVID-19, like the possibility of getting Infected with it, so people were kind of thinking like it's like the chickenpox, right? Like where you have it once and then you don't ever get it again. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do we know enough yet to know if you'll be able to get reinfected? Right. So typically, with with many viruses,
1: like once you've been exposed, you develop some level of immunity or protection to that virus. this is a new virus. So we we really don't know. I think the thought is that there should be some, we don't know if it's probably not full immunity, but some Mm -hmm. partial immunity to it um, that would protect people. But we also don't know, you know, the level of of protection and how long that lasts. Mm. So I think until we know everyone should act like they have the potential to be infected again and just use um, whatever precautions are needed.
0: Got it. Okay, so we have another question. Can I get it if I stand in my backyard for 10 minutes? My grandmother is saying the outside air makes her nauseous, but I think her anxiety is getting to her head.
1: Okay. If you're standing in your backyard with nobody else or just with the people that you live with, um, it it is not, it is not, it is,
0: what'd you say? I said, I'm thinking she's talking about standing by herself. (laughs) Yes. No, it's not. No.
1: And they're worried that the wind could like blow the virus.
0: Well, she's saying that her grandmother says that the outside air makes her nauseous. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. No, 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 actually, so like solitary, like walking, exercising, standing um, while maintaining six feet from somebody else, you should definitely be safe.
0: Got it. Okay, another question. I heard that it impacts people differently based on blood type. Is this true or is this something being researched?
1: Um, I heard that as well. I don't know the basis for it, and I don't know the data behind it, and probably um, there are a number of studies that are underway right now. We'll probably get more definitive
0: information mm-hmm. about that in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is it a myth that household pets can get the virus?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's not a myth. So apparently, um, and I and I can probably post to your page, Dr. Bradford, um, an info sheet from our health department in New York city about pets and COVID-19, but pets can um, like there've been reports of cats, I believe potentially mm-hmm. dogs who, cats definitely who have gotten COVID-19. Um, we don't know if it can be passed the other way, like a pet could pass it to a human being, but human being um, to a pet. Um, yes. Has been, seen.
0: has been seen. Okay. And another question, how much care and caution should we take with things like groceries or packages from Amazon, for example,
1: yeah, no, this is a really good question, um, and I just I think heard something from the CDC about this. I think the thought that um, packages from supermarket um, being contaminated—it's—it's it's very very unlikely in terms of the ability of the virus to live that long on on these various surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's unreasonable, and I do this too when I get my Amazon packages, um, like the boxes. I do let them sit for like twenty four hours.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or if you or if you do. Um, manipulate them or touch them just making sure you use gloves um mm-hmm. that, that can be something that's helpful if you don't have time to let it sit mm-hmm. and then just washing your hands afterwards or just you know doing whatever you need to and just making sure you have the correct um hand hygiene hand hygiene that you're washing your hands for 20 seconds with soap
0: and water or using mm-hmm. a um alcohol-based sanitizer hmm okay so so the um Information that had been circulating around, like having this whole separate staging area in your home, like when you bring groceries in, you wipe it all down and do all of these things. You're saying that that is likely not necessary.
1: Right. And there's there have been no like case reports of people um, getting COVID-19 from their groceries. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got it.
0: Got it. So I know in our community, we have been talking a lot just about the anxiety related to things reopening, Um, you know, so what kinds of suggestions maybe would you have around, um, and I think so much of it is still kind of up in the air because we don't even know like how things are going to be reopening, you know, I think (laughs) like there's going to be a lifting of the gate, so to speak, and like we all are free to kind of roam a little bit more, Um, you know, but what kinds of suggestions would you have for people like in managing their anxiety about how these things are gonna be reopening. Right, so I think with
1: this whole situation, it's like, you know, I don't, I'm sure you've probably seen this as a psychologist, like the um, so that diagram was like the things that are in your sphere of control and those that are like outside your sphere of control. So like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, just continuing, you know when you're going outside, depending on the rules in your jurisdiction, you know, face coverings, the same thing, hand hygiene, physical distancing, just doing, just you know, just whatever you can do mm-hmm. that's in your power to stay safe you know, without, um, you know, obviously this is a very anxiety producing experience for many people, but there are things that, that we can do and mm-hmm. that we do have control over. So I would just do those things, um, and do what, do what makes sense to you. Like I, I, you know, obviously large gatherings, I would probably be very concerned about those. And I, I suspect that we aren't going to have very large gatherings for a while now, you know, stadiums filled with people, mm-hmm. probably not. I think, um, you know, there's so much uncertainty. And so we just kind of like have to really take it a day at a time.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Is the CDC testing circulated air in buses, trains, grocery stores, elevators, nursing homes, or are they still focused on direct person to person contact?
1: Okay, so the, the data that we have, again, suggests that this is passed by um, droplets, like the droplets that someone's coughing, sneezing, talking that um, in close proximity to you that could spread that way, or usually by falling on a surface and someone touches that and touches their face. Um, there has been some, some data to suggest that this is also airborne. Um, and so I know some hospitals are taking also airborne precautions, meaning that like it can be like, it's all like in the air, no matter where you are, um, people can get it. But typically we have the, I believe, um, the CDC has been focusing on, um, this being acquired through, through droplets. So like close contact with, with one another.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Another question I had missed, excluding the age factor, say two 40 year olds are both exposed. Why might one be very sick or even die? And the other have no symptoms at all.
1: Yeah, I think this is like the one million dollar, whatever the six, whatever the million dollar question mm-hmm. is. It's like, um, you know, why do people have such different responses? Like, you'll see, um, you know, I know um, a couple where they both had COVID nineteen, and actually several, and the one of one person, the couple got deathly ill, and the other person did not. And it's really about um, we don't know why, but again, as I said. It's about the bodies, how the body responds to seeing this new virus Mm -hmm. and people. And there's variability in how our body, it could be based on, um, you know, what we've been exposed to in the past. You know, it could be related to sort of hereditary issues, whatever it is. But like people respond very differently. We do know that when people are older, when they have other chronic conditions, that that increases the risk for severe illness.
0: Mm -hmm. OK, so,
1: di- so right, right. So diabetes, high blood pressure, chronic mm-hmm. lung disease, kidney disease, um, heart disease, um, cancers, all, all those seem to have some association with more severe disease.
0: Hmm. OK. Another question with the dearth of Lysol and Clorox products, what's the best way to clean counters and floors? So if people can't get their hands on like the common cleaners. What might they be able to use?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think any like alcohol-based, I mean, cleaner, I'll I'll look at this. so I don't want to give people the wrong information. Um, yeah, I believe like soap and water, any alcohol-based, um, like cleaners should, should work just fine. And I'm hoping people should have access to even those things Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I can, um, take a note and, um, see if the CDC has a link to alternative options.
0: Got it. And please stay tuned to the page because if there's anything that we didn't answer here or Dr. Blackstock has additional resources, then we will um, post those on the page as well. How about COVID and kidneys? Does you, do you know much about how it's impacting kidneys and the impact on people with kidney disease?
1: Um, I I do know that, as I mentioned, that so folks who do have renal disease seem to be at higher risk for more severe illness with COVID nineteen, and we are seeing that p- people, even if they did not have like end stage renal kidney disease, um, are requiring like dialysis, are seeing their kidneys fail mm-hmm. um, while they're in infect- they're infected. So it could be that um, you know people like as I mentioned, like diabetes, hypertension, all of those things like predispose to. Kidney disease. And so, having like the stress of a, the COVID 19 disease is like an added stress on the body. And so, mm-hmm. there may be some level of susceptibility that people have anyway to like worsening renal disease mm-hmm. um, or severe renal disease. Um, so, that may be um, related to it. But I, I don't have like specific data on it, just, just to say that kidney disease is a risk factor for severe illness. And then, people are seeing in those with severe illness, worsening renal disease.
0: Mm-hmm. Charnel, the video she's asking is there a recording? So the video will be up on the Facebook page. It's not gonna go anywhere. So you will be able to catch it um, if you miss some of the beginning. What about taking off your shoes on the inside after you go outside? Is that um, a good suggestion?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think all these measures, you know, if it's like a low barrier thing that you, I mean, a low threshold thing that you can do, like take off your shoes, particularly for people who are in essential fields, who are having a lot of contact with people, yes, definitely taking off your shoes before you go inside would be helpful. We, that's a recommendation for like healthcare workers and other folks who may be exposed.
0: Okay. And another question, is there a correlation between COVID-19 and people who had the flu shot previously?
1: So I am not aware of um, any studies that have looked at this. Um, and just to my knowledge, there are different viruses. So mm. I would suspect there is not an association, but I don't know. There's a lot that's unknown and you should Probably getting more answers as the months go along.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Okay, okay, Al- okay. Oh, Al- okay, great. To see Allison um, put the link for the CDC website that has more information around cleaning and disinfection. So, thank
0: you. If Allison. folks see that, that, yeah, that's great. Thank you, Allison. Okay, so and you and I, Dr. Blackstock, were talking about this a little bit before we started um, recording she's saying, Tanisha is saying, I'm hearing a bit about amputation being related to COVID. Can you speak a little bit to that?
1: Right. So it seems like um, the virus causes lots of different um, like clinical manifestations. So we're seeing that it causes like a higher propensity or a likelihood of having like blood clots. Um, and again, this is like all new information that people are seeing. And so um, blood clots can affect the blood flow to certain parts of the body. And so if someone is having blood clots related to COVID-19 and is affecting the blood flow to the parts of the the body, for instance, a leg, um, and that area has been compromised in some way, then that would lead to a need for amputation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it really is all about like what the clinical presentation looks like. It looks so many different ways it seems. Exactly. Right. Like we were
1: talking about the um, COVID-19 toes, which seems to be like related potentially to like inflammation potentially in the blood vessels. And I think people, I mean, every, again, all of this is new. And I think Researchers are trying to like answer these questions and really understand all the different ways that this virus can present.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do think that that poses an interesting um, kind of predicament, right? So let's say you start experiencing some symptoms because this kind of looks so different. Um, you start experiencing some symptoms, some of which we've heard are related to COVID-19, but maybe some of which are not. What are some of the first steps? So should we try to like make a virtual telehealth appointment? With our primary care doctor, like, what if we have some of these symptoms, we can't get a test? Like, what are some of the steps people should take?
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely think if if someone has any concerns, they should, you know, regardless, reach out to, to their clinical provider and preferably via a telehealth option. I mean, we do know that most people tend to present with, like, fever, cough. Um, shortness of breath. Um, some people have sore throat. We talked about loss of taste and loss of loss of smell. Older people, um, like the very elderly, can present with like disorientation and confusion or or or. Um, Maybe a fall, like they may not necessarily have like a focal symptom, like a cough, Mm -hmm. Um, and so just to be like aware of that, Um, yeah. So I think there there are presentations that we know are like much more common. If someone has like something that like they're not they're worried about, I think it's very reasonable to reach out to a healthcare provider.
0: And are there certain symptoms that would indicate to you like this is absolutely the time where you need to go to a hospital?
1: Yeah, you're right. So someone is having substantial difficulty breathing. Um, that would be an indication of you if someone is seeing like bluish like tinge or um, purple It may manifest differently on us who are darker brown colored um, are seeing in your palms you can see bluish color um, when the oxygen level gets low definitely an indicator um, to get help if you're having um, persistent chest pain definitely get help one thing that we're seeing that's like very unique to this virus is that people can look normal can look normal, not in any distress and have very low oxygen levels um, and then suddenly deteriorate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why I'm saying, just like looking for other indicators of of low oxygen level, like the bluish color in the hands. Um, And if people are feeling short of breath, like definitely um, get urgent help
0: Mm -hmm. or emergent help. And then we have, it looks like one more question. What are the numbers for those who are being diagnosed with COVID-19 and who have diabetes in terms of a survival rate? Do you know those numbers? Yeah, I don't know those numbers
1: offhand, um, just that um, diabetes is increases the risk that someone will be h- hospitalized and, and die from COVID-19. So mm-hmm. that's what we do now. So I would suspect, I think when we're looking at studies of people who have been hospitalized or died from COVID-19, we are seeing...
0: Um high prevalence of diabetes okay uh, so a couple more questions yes, we have a few more minutes so get those last minute questions in. Um, are there currently more than one strain known? so I, I was
1: reading that um, this virus, um, mutates or changes very slowly Um, and so i there are multiple strains of it but i don't but not like i don't think like tons of it and they're also not seeing it change in terms of it's like you say virulence or sort of how you know deadly or powerful it is we're not seeing those changes like some other viruses um, that can change much more rapidly Um, so yeah so as of now um not tons of variation and it doesn't seem like the the virulence or the deadly nature of it is also changing very much.
0: Got it. Okay. So Naomi has a bit of a different question. She's a med student who's been dismissed from rotations as a part of the health system's policy to mitigate transmission by removing all med students from clinical care. I want to stay in tune with all that's going on, but it's a bit overwhelming, especially Mm -hmm. with the shock of getting removed from clerkships in a pandemic. What would you say are key things to stay abreast of during, to stay abreast of during this time? How can we best use this time to learn for the future, given that this will probably not be the last pandemic we encounter?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. And I'm sure it's like a very um, challenging time um, being like removed from your clerkships and, uh, and and wanting to be help of help um, and not always being able to directly help. Um, I think you know. I think you know. I think learning as much about this virus as possible. Literally, there is new information every day. Um, there's a lot of information in the, the clinical, um, the research literature. But there's a lot around like equity issues as well. And so I think what might be interesting is to figure out like how if um, Naomi is interested in terms of like one really wonderful I think side effect of this is that we're seeing you know, mutual aid, like communities coming together really to support one another or support the most vulnerable. So um, I think there are ways to like to help there if it means like seeing if they're vulnerable members of her community that need help with getting groceries or getting their medications or whatever it is, like helping to fill in some of those gaps and be like a safety net um, for people who, um, you know, may be um, much more vulnerable to this um, disease than others. Mm -hmm.
0: Two more questions. Do we know which hospitals have clinical trials for hydroxychloroquine? Now that the preliminary results show increased death, is it still ethical to keep testing in high minority areas like New York City?
1: Yeah, I was saying that um, the, the NIH had recommended specifically for chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine if anyone that people only receive it within the context of a clinical trial. And I believe someone I saw had posted in the chat uh, link to the clinicaltrials.gov website. So thank you to whoever, whoever did that because that will have um, a list of um, the most, the most up-to-date list of clinical trials that are happening with respect to hydroxychloroquine and other agents that are being looked at for COVID-19 treatment.
0: Okay, and then one final question. Would the blue color be consistent across all extremities at the same time? How would you distinguish that from renal disease?
1: So the blue color would be like... Um, in your hands, like all of your hands <clears throat> and potentially your lips. Um, Raynaud's is typically the, it's like a, causes um, the, the arteries to, to constrict. So ten, people tend to actually, I think, lose color in the tips of their fingers and it causes pain. So I would say that's like the difference.
0: That it causes pain in Raynaud's and not
1: It can be painful and it causes like i I believe it because the it affects the blood flow it would be more like uh it wouldn't be blue it might be like white like Mm -hmm. a light color like because it's like no blood flow whereas when you are um we call it cyanotic when the oxygen levels are low oxygen the blood is still getting everywhere it's just the level of oxygen is low and so what that comes off is, is is that um for people who are darker skin colors we would see like a bluish hue to our, our palms and maybe like our lips. People who have lighter color might actually see their more of their skin being blue.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for all of this incredible information, Dr. Blacksack. I really appreciate you sharing with our community today. Can you tell people where they can find you online if they wanna stay connected to what you've been doing? Sure, I post a lot on Twitter. So um, my Twitter handle is at
1: dr. O-N-I-B-E-E, at Dr. Oni B. So, Perfect. yeah. Yes, and
0: we'll share Thanks that. Thanks so much for you. having me, Dr. Bradford. Yes, absolutely. We'll share all of that in the comments as well. Thank you again to MedIQ for sponsoring this conversation. I really appreciate making this happen for our community. Like I said, the video will be saved here on Facebook so you can catch it. Please share with all of your circles so that they can get this incredible information from Dr. Blackstock. Um, I hope that you all have an incredible rest of your day and a great weekend, and we will see you all next Thursday. Take care. Stay safe.
1: Bye-bye,
0: everyone. Bye, Dr. Bradford. Bye. I'm so thankful for the work that Dr. Blackstock and so many other incredible healthcare professionals are doing. Please remember to share this episode in your circles and on Twitter or in your IG stories so that as many people have the information as possible. Remember that if you're looking for a virtual therapist in your state, check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic and meet some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care.